0: Before we get started with the show, we wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going.
1: If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches.
0: If you pledge $10 a month, you get a free two-month trial to Otter worth $26 alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. You also get access to a series of mini-episodes from previous guests on the show, in which they answer three revealing questions. The latest episode features Joanne Harris, and here's a snippet.
1: But I think that trial and error should be part of every writer's process, and no one needs to be afraid of their failure, because it's simply proof that you've learned a lesson. What trait should every good novelist possess? I think flexibility. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode we speak to football writer Henry Winter.
0: We spoke with Henry about the art of the match report, about the progression of his career and about both writing and
1: ghostwriting books. It's a great episode, we hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Henry, to Always Take Notes. It's fantastic to have you on the show. I wondered if we could start by talking about the art of the match report, um, how it actually works. You know, when do you start writing? How long do you have? Where do you write it? Just sort of lift the lid on the, on the whole process.
2: It always fascinates me how just fascinated people are with the, the, the match report. Because if, if I'm walking into a ground or coming out of a ground... They often say, "Well, when do you write your match report?" I go, "When do I write my match report? It has to be filed by 85 minutes, so I can go back." I mean, you're a big Manchester United fan. You may be too young to remember, but 1999 was a was an amazing uh, year in your history, and. But for journalists in the press box at the Neukamp for the Champions League final against Bayern Munich, when Manchester United were trailing 1-0, and I had already filed about 950 words on Alex Ferguson being tactically inept, the, <laughs> uh, the Germans having, uh, just having this control over England, uh, the tactical naivety, what was Ferguson doing playing three wingers in a four-man midfield? And then the glory of this game is that, you know, football, bloody hell. to to quote the great man, Sir Alex Ferguson. Alex Ferguson, as he was at the time. Um, The whole thing changed around. But, you know, I was looking around the press box and and I'm quite calm, but there were people screaming down their phones, saying, you won't believe what's happened. I was fortunate because I knew, I was lucky actually, because I knew when they equalised, when Manchester United equalised, because at that point, because the deadlines are so tight and because back then, the the print run, I was at the Telegraph at the time, the print run of the Telegraph was probably about 1.5 million. Every second costs hundreds of pounds, so you cannot delay. So the art of the match report is I write about two-thirds by uh, 60 minutes. And for me, the the sports journalists I admire most, like a Paul Hayward and Matt Dickinson and Oli Holt to Danny Taylor, these are the ones who file against the clock. Anyone who can anyone can file a beautiful piece sitting in their ivory tower stroking their beard. But those who do it's I mean I've seen certain distinguished sports writers come in and try to do an 11, 1200 word runner on a huge big European night against the clock and absolutely melt because they just cannot cope with because they want to polish every word. You can't. You have to absolutely sort of deliver that. It's almost like delivering a Radio I, I changed my match reports and my, my mechanics of filing a match report, which is basically probably a third of my job. I'd probably do about, well, I mean, in lockdown, I've done even more, probably doing to about 150 games behind closed doors in the last 12 months. So those are all runners. Um, but if it, was, if it was a Ferguson team, I, I talked to the office at the Telegraph and I said, listen, Manchester United under Alex Ferguson, they change in the in the second half because he gets into them at half time. He has a real go at them. And he would have this trick. He would have a go at a couple of players he knew he could absolutely slaughter, like a Giggs or a Scholes. And that message would then seep through to the uh, the other members of the team. And Manchester United will come out fired up in the second half. So often by 60 minutes... And I could push my first, my, my first of tranche of copy, which would often be about six, seven hundred words. I would often just file it then because often the match could be defined then. But then you have to give another tranche of copy at about 80 minutes, which could be another sort of 200 words. And then you have something called a top and tail. On a Champions League final, you want it to be quite good because so many people are going to read it. It goes all over the country. It obviously goes immediately up online in the digital age. Um, but that was a chaotic night as was Istanbul 2005 with Stephen Job when it went into Extra Time. And uh, that also, the, uh, the 99 was the night that uh, News International, Time, Sun, et cetera. their their computers crashed for the first edition. So they were going, we've got a double whammy here. We can't even get anything out. But I mean, I was just talking to the office and I said, listen, Manchester United have equalised through terror, Teddy Sheringham. They, the way it's going, they could score again, and thirty odd seconds later, that you know they did. So, it to be honest, it's it's brilliant to do, and it's also it's very cathartic because I can walk out of the ground and go for sort of drinks with mates and supporters of of what, whoever the teams are, and they'll all be absolutely buzzing and wanting to get all their all their sort of views and the emotion of the occasion out, and I'm sort of sort of sitting there going. I've kind of done all that. I've thrown everything that I can at the screen. And I often, I look back the next day and think, I missed a line there. I'll look at other people's match reports, their runners. I never look at rewrites. Anyone can do a good rewrite, which is the match report. You, you, you refile for the second edition. It's that, first, it's that first edition, that absolute, that instant impression, you know, that the first draft of history. And it's, it's manic. Um, I still think that we actually went at 1-1 because the edition was so tight. Um, but then 30 seconds later I updated that and it went at one. one of the glorious moments. And final story on 99 is that obviously the first edition was in a dramatic... Late turnaround, Manchester United turned history and German supremacy on its head with two late goals, followed by about a thousand words of me excoriating Ferguson's tactics. Obviously it was then better for the second edition. Of course, what were the editions that got delivered to the Manchester United Hotel in Barcelona? So Ferguson and all his coaches woke up with probably slight hangovers, probably hadn't even been to bed, to see the first editions, which was well done, Manchester United, followed by 950 words. The second edition was, was more balanced. First press conference at the start of next season, Ferguson went, I saw your first edition. <laughs> so it is the test. It is, for me, it's the, it's the adrenaline shot is, is doing that first edition runner.
0: So I saw this uh, quote from a previous interview you said where well, I think you were asked about where you got your writing done and you said, I don't have a desk, I write in lay bys service stations, grounds, only four essentials, diet coke, iPod playing, Lincoln Park, and Impashabelle, large notebook, my watch ticking down to deadline, which I thought was a sort of droid way. But is it where where physically are you are you doing this? So so you're in the press box till ninety minutes, and then and then you're writing more when you're on the road on the way back and stuff? Or how does, how does it work? You, you, you have another sort of 15
2: minutes before you get chucked out the ground in which there, obviously,
0: a lot of things are done on the Zooms,
2: press conferences is done on Zooms. Um, and then you'll get a feel of what the managers are saying. I do a lot on social media, Twitter, and I'll go on maybe one or two of the players, see how they've reacted. I'll quickly spin onto the t- the two teams' main supporters, fans' forums, just to sort of make sure that I haven't missed anything. Because even though I'm not a fan of Manchester United or Bayern Munich, although I was, I was at school in Munich as a kid and, and did go and watch Bayern Munich when I was out there, Um, I'm not a sort of a hardcore supporter, you know, like Rachel had season tickets at Old Trafford. I'm not like that. So I need to know what the fans are thinking. I need to, because it's, you know, the fan impression is so important. I don't, if I read a match report of who the great match was, say like a Paul Haywood at the Telegraph. I know he's writing a book at the moment, but he's, when he does a match report, he doesn't tell you the X, Y, and Z. Because people know that. Because that would have been out on social media, people have been watching the game. And I will write a match report differently to whether it's on terrestrial or whether it's on satellites because more people would have, would have watched it on um, terrestrial and they won't necessarily need the headers and volleys. So I'll give them more the emotion of the occasion. Um, it's possibly because I'm hopeless on facts and forget who passed to whom. But it's the emotion of the occasion. And that's why someone like Paul Hayward is, is brilliant because of his ability to capture... And the best writers and the best journalists and the best sports journalists are those who manage this unbelievable juggling act of writing with passion and perspective. So that passion to be ringside, I mean, you know, you've been a war correspondent, you've, you've sort of filed very close up, you know, I imagine in completely horrific situations, but also to have that perspective of being able to take a step back, to be at the back of the stadium, to be beyond the boundary and actually then see what is the significance of something that's happening at speed. And say someone like a Paul Hayward, a Martin Samuel at the Mail, Ollie Holt Mail on Sunday, Matt Dickinson, my colleague at the, uh, at the Times. They do that brilliantly. And it is such a difficult art form because a lot of writers can write. I mean, I tend to write with a lot of emotion because I get sort of kind of engaged in the whole event, but I'm not very good at the perspective side. So I think the best writers in this, in this profession um, it's not really a profession. I mean, we, you know, we swan around the world going to football matches and then having a laugh and staying out late afterwards. And, uh, you know, the opportunity to travel, it's not a proper job. And that's been highlighted during the pandemic with the amazing work that doctors and vaccine specialists and, and what I will call proper people do. Um, it's not a proper job, but the people who do it brilliantly are those who manage that amazing skill. of I mean, like Hugh McIlvanney, a great boxing writer, he could be at ringside and record, you know, the rumble in the jungle, the great fights, And he could, you could, if you read his copy in the Observe or the, the Sunday Times, you would feel that you were there and you almost being splashed with the blood and the sweat of the, uh, of the boxers. And yet he could also, at the same time, take that step back and say, what is the significance of this to boxing, to life? Uh, it's... It's quite humbling, actually, when you see the ability of these great writers that we've got in this country, these great sports writers, like a McIlvaney or, or a Matt Dickinson or a Paul Hayward or Martin Samuel, to be able to juggle that, to be so close that you can smell the sweat and also be far away that you can, you can actually realise the long-term significance of a, of a fast, fast-flowing event.
1: I read that Geoffrey Green was one of your um, sort of journalism heroes as well. He's the sort of godfather of football reporting. What was it that you liked about his, his prose in particular?
2: It's interesting, the word hero, and I'm always very wary of uh, using it. And the former Chelsea owner, Matthew Harding, I, I went to interview him once and uh, I said, who were your you know, footballing heroes? And he said, never use the word heroes. Heroes are soldiers, heroes, are, as we've seen in the last like, 14 months, and nurses and doctors and key workers. So I'm always... I always get slightly wary of uh, of the word heroes. Um, I mean, one of I mean, Jeffrey Green was just what I loved about him is that he he didn't treat life too seriously. When he won an award from the Football Writers Association, he walked in and he just he had an old school tape recorder and he just pressed it and he just played what a wonderful world and he just let that play for sort of two minutes then wandered off to the bar he was very good at wandering to the bar he also had a, a nice cottage in Twickenham in London and uh, he had a Christmas tree up in his front room and people would always come and say "Why well, I've got a Christmas tree up he said listen if you're a football journalist, every day is Christmas Day. And we are very fortunate because it's it's a... People come into the profession and they go, this is really weird because your biggest rivals are also your biggest mates. You know, we go to each other's weddings. You know, some people are godparents to each other's uh, children. And yet you're trying to slit each other's throats with stories and who's got the best interviews, who's got the best intro. And then there's actually an amazing camaraderie, which I've actually... I've not really seen, certainly in other... Like, a lot of the Italian journalists are really competitive with each other. We're really competitive with each other, but we'll go for a drink afterwards. We'll say, if, say, Ian Ladyman, who writes fantastic interviews for the Daily Mail, if he's got a great read on a Saturday morning, and he often gets them, and there's a certain rivalry of who gets the best interviews on a Saturday morning, I'll send him a text. First thing I said, fantastic, you've done me there. It's an absolute brilliant interview. So there is, there is that respect. But coming back to the sort of Jeffrey Green thing, it's not a proper job. I mean... The people I went to school with are doctors, politicians, rock stars. That's not really a proper job, but still. You know, I mean, they've just got unbelievable, or they are having unbelievable careers, doing, just doing amazing things. I mean, where I live in the country, I've got mates who are RAF pilots. I mean, you know, if I go to the pub with them, now that we're allowed and talk to them about the things that they've done, the things they've seen, I'm going, mm, you know... The the debate about um, Wesley Fofana's hamstring for Leicester City uh, at the weekend against Spurs slightly pales into significance. So, look, I'm incredibly lucky because I just want to travel. And, you know, we're very lucky with this job. I've been to eight World Cups. And the great thing about this job, Simon, you probably got this, having been in countries during an intense emotional national experience, obviously war obviously far more serious. But when there's a World Cup on, completely different level, but when there's a World Cup and you go to Brazil and the whole country is partying and you go down a side street off the Copacabana Beach and then you turn off a side street off that and you turn off a side street and you head into a favela and there's a party going on and there are people watching football and the common language of football. When I speak, you know, smatterings of what I call sort of Champions League speak and can get around a bit. But just that language and that immediacy and like the World Cup in Russia was fantastic. I mean, I, I started Tolstoy and Turgenev at, at university and I just I love getting lost, partly because I, I get lost quite naturally. But I love the idea of going to a country, walking out of a hotel or Airbnb or wherever I'm staying and just wandering and getting lost and just and if you just smile and say, oh, sorry, I was looking for... Tolstoy or Turgenev or Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky was a really good one to use in Russia, I said Dostoevsky wrote one of his books around here and i to make it up and, and people would actually sort of take you and say no it was actually over there and I just love that idea of having that opportunity to uh to, to travel to see the world get paid for it and it's not it's not a proper job it really isn't Rachel it's just it's a bit of a laugh.
0: Could we roll back to, to the beginning? I saw, I think in another interview that you said that the, the only other job you'd had was stacking shelves in Selfridges and this was the, the only job you could have done. Um, but saying you wanted to be a football writer since you were 15 or 16. Talk, tell us about how you, you broke in. So you, you, you were at Edinburgh and then you worked for this agency called Haters. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I was at school in the middle of London, um, a, I sang in a choir in Westminster Abbey and that was, I was never going to make it as a choir boy. Football for people from my background, the idea of, it well, first I never had the ability, um, but that was never an issue. But it was always this opportunity, I mean, it seems a little bit of a scam. Travelling around, being played to write about football. I captained the England press team for years until I lost the dressing room because I was so useless and we had a bad run of games. But we would go to a country like Poland before England played in Katowice. And we would play, you know, there'd be twenty, well, fifteen, twenty thousand 15,000, 20,000 fans would turn up because it was the England national press team who were not particularly good. Uh, although we, ha- we would normally get a few former international ringers in to, uh, to, to, to help keep the ball, uh, you know, against the Polo national team. And, you know, you'd march out to national anthems, and I'm just laughing. I'm standing behind Terry Butcher, you know, England legend who was working for BBC at the time, and thinking, this is not a proper job. I'm here in this amazing country, which I've got an opportunity to explore on the mornings of games. And so just coming back to your question, That is really what I wanted, because Geoffrey Green had this, and he wrote one particular piece in the early 70s, which has always stayed with me. He wrote a sort of like a 900-word match report uh, from Maracanã on uh, Brazil against England. I think it was only friendly, wasn't it? A particularly big game, but... About eight hundred words of his. It was an absolute spellbinding match report, but eight hundred words were about his taxi journey from Rio Airport to Maracanã, and just the things that he saw and the sort of you know the carnage. Obviously, he wrote about the game as well because he was a brilliant writer on the game, but it's partly travelogue for me as well. So I've always I've always liked that. I've always wanted to do that. So. Yeah, university was, I mean, the university was absolutely brilliant. I said, listen, I know exactly what to do. I'm going to do the day after my final exam here, which I think was Turgenev. Um, I couldn't even spell Turgenev by the time I got there, four years sort of messing around. I played non-league football up there. I edited the student use, the, the normal things that everyone did. But I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And this, you know, I talked to a lot of kids who are obviously at school or going to journalism school. And I said, just whatever you do, just do it with an absolute passion. And I've been fortunate that I've been able to do that. But I only have one strength, is that I don't need much sleep. And that you can do this job, you can really only do this job properly if you're quite happy on five hours a night. And never mention Thatcher uh, only needed five hours a night in front of Alex Ferguson, which Ferguson never mention that woman's name in my company because Ferguson was famously only five hours a night but it is a great trick. so I've also one other strength I've got is I have a visualization technique which allows me to have a five minute kip in a lay by on a service station or in a car park for matches which is something that I've that I've learned so I can just sort of switch off for five minutes and then go again and survive on those five hours so those are all those things coming back I just thought I mean, all my friends were going off and just doing amazing things in life, really responsible jobs, you know, running businesses, politicians, whatever. And I just thought, I'm going to be really self-indulgent and swan around the world watching football.
1: And how did it um, come about when you joined the Independent for the launch? What was it like to be there at the birth of of that newspaper?
2: They were brilliant. I mean, I, I sort of... How did I get in? I said that... You want to basically build up a a, uh, a readership, and your appeal is young it is are you that famous andreas Whittam, um, phrase and i just said why don 't I write a, a column on school sports why don 't I write a column on university sport and i wasn 't particularly good, but that uh, they seemed to like it, and it was a brilliant place to work because of the just the atmosphere. And I was doing subbing on the sports desk as well. I mean, I was still young, obviously very early twenties. And what I loved is that the sports desk was next to the fashion desk. And it was just, (laughs) the the battles between the two. I just, I don't know whether Andrea Smith had a particularly sort of wry sense of humour that he thought he would put the smartest dressed people in the building, the fashion department. We had a very famous fashion writer and uh, the, the sort of jokers like me, badly dressed jokers um, in the uh, in, in the sports department next door. And there was one of the uh, one of the fashion writers walked through the independence fo- the football desk one day and she was smoking. And uh, the sports editor said to never come into the sports department smoking. And she didn't. She dropped a little bit of ash on one of the desks and said, "Never come through the fashion department dressed like that." And it was just—it it was a great place to be, the indie. And I think we had a 30th anniversary a few years ago, and it was just great to see everyone again. Again, it was a, a breeding ground for just fantastic writers. Uh, again, come back to Paul Heywood, well, you know, one of the, the the greats. He was brilliant there. So many people started there, and one of the best sports editors I've ever had in Simon Kelner who what I liked about him he he looked at the work I did ripped it up and said you pay off your intro tweak those around stop being so precious and it was it was just an education working there so I was I was very fortunate to be there.
0: Is it right that the first world cup you did was Italia 90?
2: Yeah.
0: How how did kind of moving to covering sport internationally how how was that different to doing it domestically and then back uh, at that time, how was it different in terms of filing and the logistics? How's that all sort of changed over the years, the international piece?
2: I mean, I think like most people, I just love traveling. And I went out to Italy, um, the independents, they didn't have enough money to send people. And I said, Well, listen, I'm going to go and I'll file pieces for you, uh, some when I get back. And they said, Fine, but we can't give you any expenses. I was sleeping on park benches, I was just hitching around, and I was fortunate with a couple of the games. That I went to, and it's it 's funny it 's one of those things I mean you know we all quarry our experiences in life and use them on a regular basis and everything that I saw in Italia Nineteen I had the privilege of seeing Maradona in action um, you know they, they just sort of shape you as a person and they shape you as a as a writer now Just that experience knowing that for, with absolutely nothing you can go to a game and you can find a phone and you can file and reverse charges and you're ad-libbing off copy and there'd be a fantastic copy taker who'd be taking things down. And even if you've got, as certainly happened for the first half of my career, when it was all on copy rather than laptops, you've got people screaming, you know, 100,000 people sort of screaming in the, in the background. These incredibly calm copy takers would, you know, would, would just take your copy down beautifully. And occasionally you'd be wired. have they got it all? And I've had certain things. I mean, I had a match report in Milan which had, it was a Manchester, Rachel, your beloved Manchester United, it was a Manchester United were playing there. And they said, uh, I think my intro was Manchester United uh, knew that things were going to be difficult when they ran out to the the, the theme tune for Mr. Softball. And I got a call from friends at home and said, so I've not seen this film, Mr. Softball. And I said, what? And I said, oh, no, they are. we're in the San Siro and about 80,000 Italians screaming. And what I said is Manchester United knew they were in for a difficult evening when they ran out to the theme tune for Mission Impossible. But because of the sort of the sound and, you know, the, the speed in which you're doing it, it, came over as Mission Impossible. So, I mean, travelling aboard is, is what I love. And I mean, the office asked me at the start of lockdown, they said, uh, right, we were, we we're asking all our writers, first lockdown, we we're writing all, asking all our writers what they miss most. And I'll say, well, actually what I miss most is, you know, going to Barcelona and going for a drink in one of the cafes just in town afterwards, places that you've got to know, bar owners that you've got to know. I don't spend all my time frequenting bars, but it's just... Say, Iax, I love going to Amsterdam. I always stay in the same hotel in, in the middle of the town near the station because I like to go out at night and then I know I can get, like, the six o'clock train out to the airport in the morning. And just seeing the commuters. I love that in a city, just seeing a city awake in the morning before the tourists are out, before everyone sort of got ready for work. Um, I love all that. So, But I didn't want to do that because... People in lockdown, they don't want to read me sort of talking about, you know, 100 great grounds I've been to, or 100 great bars I've been to. I would have struggled to have got it down to 100 great bars. Um, but just that travelling, coming back to your point, Simon, just that, the, the love of travelling. And look, you, you've been in war zones. I mean, the only time, well, I've been to a few Ferguson press conferences, which could be war zones at times. Uh, Istanbul is probably the closest I've come where, you know, they Letting off machine guns over your head and things like that, but um, no it's it 's not a proper job. I keep coming back to that because I think it 's because I, I look at some of the younger writers coming in and they are fantastic and the quality of writers that are coming in now out of the uh, out of the sort of traditional universities but also out of um, journalism school I mean, would you believe it? There is a three year course on football journalism, and it's, and they 're so good. Um, but and they, and they take it as a very serious profession. And then I come along and say, well, actually, it's a bit of a joke. You know, really, they're slightly more important things. Although what has been good in the last 14 months is that as a football correspondent, that we've had to write, I've, I've written for a long time about obesity. And I'm sure when the... Uh, when there's a government review eventually into the pandemic and COVID, that the obesity levels in this country will absolutely be looked at. It's a serious issue. I've been writing about it years. I've been to see health ministers and, and secretaries of state and talk to them about it, partly from a selfish perspective, because I, I worry about what it does for the, the, uh, the, the national team long term. If the pool of uh, talent is restricted by a bad diet at an early age, and if you go into... This is a bit technical, but if you go into Premier League academies now, they will often look at kids from overseas, particularly African countries, because they say in terms of sugar intake, they are two years better um, in in terms of less sugar intake than kids from down the road here. Um, So I write about that. Obviously, what I love about this job, even though we're writing about the hellers and volleys and the football and Fafana's hamstrings, we're also writing about racism. We're also writing about taking the knee, issues like that. I mean, sadly, I've been to many England games particularly abroad, particularly in East Europe, and also, sadly, in, in Spain, in Madrid, where England players have been racially abused. So we talk about racism. We talk, I mean, I've written a book with, with John Barnes, in which he talked about the sort of the racism he experienced, Great England International, growing up. So even though it is a, a sports base, and although I sort of slightly put it into the context of it's not really a job, we do have that opportunity to talk about health, to talk about politics, to talk about Boris Johnson. Is he... Literally on a vote with it. I mean, I talked, I don't know whether I should say this, but I talked to someone very close to Boris Johnson when all the Marcus Rashford stuff popped up for the first time about um, feeding kids. You know, come on, we're a wealthy country, 21st century. We should be able to make sure that kids don't go to bed at night uh, hungry. And what Marcus was doing was absolutely brilliant. But I talked to someone who's quite close to Boris Johnson and I said, listen... Tell Boris he's not gonna beat Marcus Rashford. Marcus Rashford will do to the Prime Minister what he does to full on a regular occasion. He'll run rings around him. First, because he's got the intelligence, he's got the experience, he's got that passion in him because he knew what it was like to uh, to have a mother who went to bed um, hungry. He heard her, Melanie, his mother, crying herself to sleep at night because she worried about how she was going to feed the, the, the three boys. Um, you're not going to beat Marcus, particularly as you look at footballers now, they've got access all areas and also they've got huge social media presence. And so I just passed on a vague warning. Look, there are two number 10s in this battle and only one's going to win and that's with number 10 on the back of his shirt. So all those things, just coming back to a general point, even though it's it's not a real job, actually it's quite nice because you do cross all those, those different areas, the important issues in public life.
1: Um, footballers seem to be a sort of um, lightning rod for, you know, various different, you know, moral conundrums. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, Matt Hancock saying that premier league players should take a pay cut. (laughs) Um, so yeah, there's much more that you can bring into, into football stories than just as you say, the headers and the volleys. Um, could we talk about access more generally, um, how you have built your, um, sort of network of contacts, how it works, you know, how, how much time you get given with people in general, all that kind of thing.
2: Well, the two of you are both sort of experienced, trusted journalists. And that's the key is trust. Absolutely. You have trust. And I've been very fortunate where I've worked at The Independent for eight years, The Telegraph for 21 years, and now The Times for five, six years. And they've always been very good to me on headlines. I've always said to them, I said, listen, can we just have a balanced headline? Because that's what people tend to to read. Uh, And I think it's important. I learned a very important lesson through one of my many mistakes. I've been fortunate, I make so many mistakes, but I've also, I've I've tried to learn from them. One of the many mistakes I made was at the World Cup draw in Brazil. And we were at this beautiful place on a beach somewhere in Northern Brazil. And the great Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, but the original Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo, who famously scored a hat-trick at Old Trafford and got applauded and Roman Abramovich was there and fell in love with with football and went off and bought Chelsea. But Ronaldo was slightly overweight at the time. And I put out a tweet, which I thought was quite funny, being me and sort of slightly Alan Parchtee. And I put out this tweet saying, you know, this was not only the day that England discover who they were going to play in the World Cup in in 2014. It was also the day that, that the football's biggest question about who ate all the pies was answered. And then I sort of put hashtag Ronaldo. The, quite rightly, the battering I got from Brazilians, from supporters of his former clubs, um, saying he's got a thyroid problem at the moment. And so I learned a lesson there, never personalise. Footballers are really good. You can criticise them. You know, I mean, I've written two books with Dalglish and absolutely hammered him over his handling of the Luis Suarez-Patrice Evra racism. Thing. I mean, if I look out the window there, I can remember I was almost walking a groove up and down the, the garden, talking to him and saying, you're not quite handling this right. And I had to criticise him. But I think if people don't personalise it, always, always remember that they're people. Always remember that they're, they're, they're humans and that they're, you know, they're flesh and blood and they do bleed and they do feel. And, and I think people, yeah, I think they do. I think they will trust you.
0: So it's a rule of the podcast that we always ask everyone about money and how it interfaces with their writing lives. So you can be as candid... Money, yeah. as in S- S- Sadio Mane, who plays for Liverpool. No, as in as in cash. Uh, oh, cash. Yeah, yeah. Okay. As in as in money. Matty Cash, who plays for Aston Villa. Also, also good. But we're gonna we're gonna push on this. But um, so you can be as candid or as guarded as you want. But we basically, you know, how does it how does it work in terms of your career and as your profile has risen and and stuff like that? I mean, the, the stories are told that you know at the Telegraph, you and Matt. Would have got paid more than the editors and, and everything like that. Like, how is really, yeah? I mean, but, but you, know, we, we, you know, we don't want to push you to ground you're uncomfortable with, but just in, in terms of as your career has developed over 30 years, how has the financial side of it kind of changed and evolved?
1: Well,
2: you, you don't do this job for the cash, absolutely not. You do it, I'm like, again, I come back to what my mates are doing, and some of them retire because they've done brilliantly. You do it because you love words, you love travel, you love hanging around with mates, um, you love meeting new people. I'm incredibly nosy and curious. If I'm like, when I knew I was doing this, I'm usually Googled the two of you because I was so curious about your career development, where, you know, you, what influences shaped you as as kids. I find that it's probably, possibly, because a lot of my friends tell me I'm actually quite boring um, away from away from work. And I'm just really interested in other people. I was very fortunate, I had a very privileged upbringing, uh, schooling and all that, loving family, parents were, Dad was quite a well-known architect, my mother was a designer, my brother's a very well-known um, Muslim cleric, my sister is uh, very successful, she's the most talented of the three of us, even though people tend to focus more on my brother, she's a very t- uh, talented artist, and I, and that was the greatest gift that my parents gave us, was just follow your passion, and I think that that's that's more important than any sort of financial, um, you know, wealth that you can get through uh, through through work. I never even think I never take my holiday. I mean, I read apparently what I was on what was it I think Private Eye? They were speculating what I was on. I was going absolute no, absolute nonsense. It was, it was way more inflated. And then coming back to your point about Matt, Matt gets paid absolutely what he what he's worth because he's he is fundamental to the telegraph i mean if i go into a supermarket i'll be buying mac cartoons then and when i left the the telegraph they got in a slight huff but i said listen i'm going because i've always wanted to work for the time this is my dream move Um, and i went in to see executives and people like that and i said listen you know, I've been here 21 years. I love this place. I'm only going because this is the one place. Anyway, I think they, were, they didn't really want me to come back in and say my goodbyes after they put me on gardening leave. But I managed to find a way in through the fire escape. And I'm, I'm quite sort of nosy like that and uh gone in through the fire escape i just wandered around the, the the telegraph offices in victoria just saying goodbye to people because there was you know I, I read some stuff in i don't i don't think it was uk press gazette or online or whatever just saying i'd sort of left under account i mean i got so many good mates there and i wanted to say goodbye to them so i just went round from desk to desk and someone said i don't think you're supposed to be here and i said well I'm." I loved my 21 years of the Telegraph. The readers, you know, I exchanged letters. And I still exchange letters with Telegraph readers. And I've left, what, six years ago. But one of the reasons why I went back in was to say goodbye to Matt. Because Matt, I just love his humour. I love his cartoons. I love his design. He is, in many ways, the sort of heartbeat of the the Telegraph. Um, And the amazing thing, if I remember rightly, Matt would do four cartoons on the four big issues of the day and then they would choose one and there would be three amazing cartoons you know it's like me going and doing a match report and then saying well we quite like that one and throwing the other three away <laughs> okay oh that's exhausting so the, the telegraph is a special place and you know i was very fortunate to have 21 years there i'm had amazing edit- i'm gonna have max hastings as my as my editor and i said i remember one of my first weeks there i sat next to him at lunch just listening to you probably had him on your podcast. I mean, I just have, just yep. listening to him talking. <laughs> well, you'll know Matt with your, you know, you you've got sort of similar backgrounds in a way, army and um, uh, and, and and journalism. And it was just unbelievable just listening. Well, you've both written books on, on the army as well. So totally fortunate. I've just been so blessed, independent, had great eight years there, and then I jumped ship in the World Cup in '94, and then to have 21 years at the, uh, the the Telegraph. So coming back to your central point. Don't go into this game if you're interested in money.
1: Message from our sponsor, Vitsu. Marta's story.
0: If only each shelf could talk, reflected Marta, a Vitsu customer since 2004. Her shelving system began modestly and has grown over the years. It travelled with her from London to Valencia and now Amsterdam. This is the fifth time Marta has bought from Vitsu. Every time, she speaks with her personal Vitsu planner, Robin, who reorganised her bookshelves to fit her Spanish walls and her Dutch hoose. He even sent her extra packaging to protect her shelves with each move. You might say that their relationship has become a friendship over the years. Marta knows she is valued and trusts the advice Robin gives.
1: If your shelves could talk, what would they say? Vitsu 606 Universal Shelving System is a modular, adaptable kit of parts. It can form the perfect home for your books and even the desk from which to write one. Visit vitsu.com, V I T S O E.com, or request a free brochure via email at vitsu.com by quoting ATN 606.
0: Vitsu, Makers of Long Living Furniture by Dieter Rams.
1: Your departure from the Telegraph did um, cause quite a stir, and that people were very interested in the circumstances of it. It also generated some amazing headlines. Winter is coming now is the win. Now the winter is off. They're discontented was another one I found. Um, I mean, there was also some speculation that your contract at the Telegraph was designed to avoid you being poached that you had a break clause of 18 months. Was that true? Uh,
2: I'm trying to remember it so long ago, it certainly wasn't 18 months, um, Do you know what was good is that the two sets of lawyers, I mean, this is so way over my head, um, two sets of lawyers just thought, well, actually, we'll probably have people going the other way. Let's try and do this in a civilised way as possible. And I was very grateful. You know, I wrote them a letter. I went in to see Murdoch McLennan, who was my boss at the time. I went in to see him in the boardroom, and we just had a good chat. And I said, listen, I know some people have left um, in a slightly sort of rancorous way, I absolutely don't want to do that because I've loved, you know, I might go back to the Telegraph one day. I doubt they'd have me back, but, you know, because they've, they've got fantastic, uh, you know, Sam Wallace and Jason Burt. They've got, you know, they've got fantastic writers there now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I love the place. I don't see how, I mean, everyone assumes that as a journalist, if you leave a place, you have to go out throwing fireworks and, you know, sort of abuse people. I had so many friends there, you know, people who worked in the, the, the canteen, Great, great cartoonists like Matt, Murdoch McClendon, who was always a very good boss for me. And when I'd had offers before, um, they'd always sort of said, no, we want you to stay, giving you a bit of love, taking me out for a nice lunch at the Goring, things like that. So yeah, I, I look back on it fondly and I'm quite glad that, you know, I mean, I had a few other organisations saying, did I want to spill the beans on the Telegraph? And I said, well, then there are no beans to spill. I'm just going from, it's a bit like being a player, really. It's like going from A to B. So I was, to be honest, I was slightly surprised and highly amused that there was such a fuss about it, because I'm just a reporter, just changing seats.
0: In terms of social media, you've got a, a huge presence on Twitter, and I was looking at um, uh, an interview from from like 2012 when you had... 400,000 followers back then you know that's a, a kind of different era of social media I also saw an interesting comment that you said that your wife once locked your BlackBerry in the hotel safe and went out and found you going through the combinations and um, when did you kind of get involved in Twitter you mentioned a bit about the, the, the role it plays in your work and using it as a sounding board and stuff but did you make a, a kind of deliberate push to get ahead of the curve on that or how did it how did it evolve? Pure, pure accident, someone at the Telegraph
2: suggested it and said, uh, you want to get on quick so you can get at Henry Winter. I think there was a tailor in Hong Kong who had a similar name and we had a little sort of negotiation, not financially, I just said, listen, mate, I'd really like it. And he was quite relaxed about it. Um, so I got at Henry Winter. Um, you know what? It, it's I don't want to suggest that everything comes back to sort of pubs and bars with me, but when I go into the local pub near where I live, and I'm sort of talking to sort of people. They're saying, oh, what was it like just walking into Wembley with like 90,000 fans all day? And I was just thinking, actually, I've got this amazing access that I'm walking in. Obviously, you have to respect access within a ground, so I wouldn't tweet anything from from the tunnel if I was down there doing an interview for television or radio. But actually, sort of, But people want to see all these things. People want to see a photograph of the ground. I think it's been particularly poignant during lockdown and games behind closed doors with fans not being able to get into ground i realized very quickly don't tweet pictures from inside stadia during lockdown because all you'll get quite rightly is fifteen thousand people saying you know don't rub our noses in it we're at home you're lucky to go into the ground um but yeah just things like that but i've i also use it for a bit of fun but also i use it for a research tool so if i if i if i'm thinking of a line which i'm going to use for a match report, I'll tweet it at 80 minutes of the match. And if people ignore it or say, that's rubbish, then I won't use it. But I'll often use it. And if if it doesn't get much abuse, I'll use it in the, uh, in, in, in the, in the, the intro. But also, I think it's quite... It keeps my feet on the ground because I think I'm probably a little bit arrogant. And actually, it's quite good when you've got 20,000 Liverpool fans saying, you got that wrong, mate or 10,000 Manchester United fans saying, why did you call for Ferguson's resignation, mate? Uh, I think it's quite, I think it's very good. And it just gives me more of a feel and more of a connection to what other people within the ground or watching at home are saying. And that can only enhance my match report.
1: Could we talk now about your book writing? Um, first, your um Collaborations with Kenny Dalglish, which you've mentioned, you've also worked with Stephen Gerrard and Michael Carrick. How do those projects work in practice? Are you sitting down, sort of interviewing them, and then helping them um, craft the prose?
2: It Depends on the individual. I mean, John Barnes is—he's such an eloquent individual. Comes from sort of almost sort of foreign office background. His mother was the, was the Sue Lawley of Jamaican television. Amazing family. So talking to John. Uh, similar ages, similar sort of North London backgrounds. I would just put the kettle on, put the tape recorder on and let John speak. And it was just, I mean, he. it's funny actually, because he, he's, I found this often, footballers, slight cliche, but they, they speak as they play. And John was this, just this magnificent expressionist who would pick the ball up and he would pick an argument up and he would weave and he would weave and he'd weave. Um, he loves the sub does John. So he had to sort of filter out some of those. But he he was fascinating to uh, to talk to. And again, you don't do these books for the money. I do them for the education and a bit of a laugh. I've got this opportunity to go and sit and talk to, and spend some private time with one of the most remarkable um, footballing athletes, footballers this country's ever seen. Whether it's John Barnes. Whether it's Steven Gerrard, Stephen Gerrard was completely different because his sentences, his answers were just bang. It was like he was shooting, scoring against Olympiacos. You know, I mean, he was just amazingly powerful. I think I had probably about twenty hours with him, which is quite short for a hundred and ten thousand word book, but it was all incredible value. And then I think he only changed four things at the end, and probably my spelling. Dalglish was more reflective but there were some very emotional moments in it. And, you know, when he spoke, I mean, the difficult chapter for him to to talk about was, was Hillsborough, because it was the first time that he'd spoken about it at length. And he, I left all that to, to the last, because he had to be in the right mood. You have to be quite sort of sensitive to the moods. I'm writing a book at the moment, which will be announced in a, in a month or so. And that's, I sort of go and I sort of sit down and we talk and then sometimes someone wants to talk about one part of their career. So you've got to be sort of ready for sort of bobbing and weaving. But Dal Gleish when he spoke about Hillsborough, I mean, I just, I always have two tapes because one tape broke once and I lost some very good stuff in an interview with Ashley Cole years back. Uh, so the two tapes are worrying and then I try not to have notes. Any interview I do, I try not to have notes. I want it to be conversational. I just want to sort of sit there just talking to them so they feel like it's two people chatting But Doug Leash when he spoke it was just so powerful and he spoke and I think I probably tied it up a couple of sentences but otherwise it all went in that that chapter which everyone sort of obviously was a very emotive chapter a lot of people commented on that was basically just me basically that was a transcription job. But it's an incredible privilege to, to, to talk to these people who I admire as individuals. Stephen Gerrard, uh, Michael Carrick at Manchester United. I mean, amazing, amazing individuals, John Barnes and Kenny Dalglish. Um Amazing individuals as well as great sporting individuals. And again, very selfishly coming back to what is it, how does it help me? It expands my knowledge of the game. It expands my understanding of footballers as people as well as the sportsmen and women that we see on the pitch.
0: And what about with 50 Years of hurts in terms of what was your your process for doing that? And also, you know, a book which which raises a number of kind of criticisms of, of why English football has not repeated that success from the 60s, but also some of the kind of cultural factors of the game, the way that players are handled. And I was reading a quite interesting review that was talking about saying, um, uh, you know, that they um, basically you know, they had players, young players detached from, from the society that, that they represent. I mean, what was your your initial point of departure with that book and what was the experience of writing it and then some of the reception as well?
2: I got put on gardening leave by The Telegraph and uh, a few of my mates, including one or two people in football, sent me messages saying, you've got a really small garden, I've got a really big garden, you can come over and do so the sort of remaining three and a half months of your, uh, of, of your gardening leave, sort of marrying my lawn. Um, I just thought, what am I going to do in this three and a half months? So I thought, right, I have this finite time. I've always wanted to write this book. Just go for it. So I went out to. I kind of sort of drew in on all the all the sort of the contacts and relationships that you try to build up over the years. So I went out to, uh, L.A. and uh, had a chat with Stephen Gerard there on England, the pressures that he felt of playing for England, because he felt, you know, he had 100-odd caps, and he felt he only played well in 100 of them. So just trying to go behind the sort of headline, having a bit more time to talk to someone. Frank Lampard was at New York City at the time, but he he had a game out at LA Galaxy, Stevie's team. So I talked to Frank out there as well, and people were really helpful. And I tried to make it like a sort of travelogue. I mean, it was was interesting as a book, because it came out just before... um, 2016 the, the, Euro, the european championships in france and it didn't do particularly well and i said to the publishers and i said listen i put my heart and soul and my thesaurus into this book why didn't it do so well and they said because england didn't do well and i said well kind of the whole idea of the book was why england doesn't do well And they said yeah but if it had done really well it would have solved if england had done really well it would have solved really well um but, you know, what? I had a long chat. I had a long lunch with Roy Hodgson, who was England manager at the time. And it was, it was I find things like that very educational as well. I mean, I, I don't want to sound like a complete village idiot, but I do a lot of things for the fun of it. And I do, uh, I do love sitting down and listening to footballers. You know, whatever industry... You know, my, my dad was a, you know, was a well-known architect. And I can remember at the dinner table as a kid, he would have all these really famous, you know, the Mike Hopkins and people like that, you know, w- would be sitting around the table and, and, and talking. He would, you know, he knew Rogers and Foster and all these people. And when you saw people who were so passionate about one thing, about buildings, about art and architecture and the maths and the engineering involved and all that of putting up a great building. Just hearing anyone with a passion. I mean, one of the worst pieces, I've written some terrible pieces, um, but one of the worst pieces I think I ever wrote was when the editor of the Telegraph sent me off to, to cover Paris Fashion Week. So they, we had a very distinguished, Hillary Alexander, a very distinguished uh, fashion writer. And they said, right, we'll get her to go to a game. Henry, you can choose the game. And I said, well, what about Millwall West Ham when they meet in the cup? She can go and cover that. would be a nice, lively one for fashion.
0: Oof, Car- Millwall. Yeah, Millwall.
2: <laughs> so I said, well, I'm going to get her to go down Lush. to Millwall. And I actually sort of, I got the, uh, I got the slightly better straw. Uh, I got to cover Paris Fashion Week. And it, obviously what they wanted was for someone who writes about, you know, groin strains and volleys to go and take the mickey out of or you know paris fashion week but i mean i had access to all areas i mean it was unbelievable you know we went out with supermodels we you know I, I spent time sort of backstage at with amazing you know chris Lacroix and all these great you know just sort of chatting away to them uh finding quite a few of them were football fans and i was talking to someone from it wasn't tatler it was vanity fair uh, well-known fashion writer. And he said, oh, no, not another sports journalist coming to take the mickey out of us fashion people. Um, and the piece was hopeless because I'm not prepared to take the mickey out of people who are so as passionate about their subject as I am about football. So I think yeah, that comes down to, uh, to, to, to respect. But I did have a fantastic three days in Paris. Uh, and when I got into my hotel room, right in the, the, the first arrondissement, at the end of my bed was just a pile of invitations. I mean, 30 or 40 invitations front row seat. And I have to say it was brilliant. And, but when you see people like that who are so passionate, you respect that.
1: Could we talk um, more generally as we come towards the end of our time about um, the footballing media landscape generally, in particular, the rise of The Athletic. How do you think that's sort of changed the consumption of sporting journalism?
2: I think The Athletic's fantastic. I think that I didn't like the, the, the premise when the uh, the owner came in. He said, "We're going to be the last one standing, and we're going to, you know, we're going to sort of see off uh, local newspapers." Because I've actually looked at some of their best writers; they've all started the Liverpool Echo, Nottingham Post. You know, it's it's vitally important. It's almost a bit like football with the sort of smaller clubs down the pyramid. It's absolutely vital that the people have a chance to start somewhere. I started off at a at, at an agency, but so many of my colleagues have started off on, on local newspaper, and I didn't like that, that the guy coming in. And I know people absolutely who good friends of mine, like you know, my effectively my boss at the uh, at the Times, Alex K. Jelski, He 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 left, and I know that they. They weren't impressed with what management upstairs had said. Uh, I think anything that uh, encourages funds uh, football journalists jobs absolutely to be applauded. I and mean, I think what they've got seventy people. I hope it works. I don't know the the business model. It's far too intelligent for me. But they've got some fabulous writers: Ollie Kay, who's I worked alongside at the Times; um, Danny Taylor, who's who's brilliant; Stuart James, you know. Um, they've, got a, they've got fantastic writers there. So I, I think that's good. And I hope it, you know, I, I genuinely hope it works. Um, because ultimately, they're owned by venture capitalists, and they'll decide it. Uh, I think also, maybe from a selfish perspective, it gave us, it allowed me to sort of, and my counterparts at other media organisations to go in and say, actually, we need to not necessarily invest a bit more, but, you know, let's give more space, more pagination. We've got, a, there's a new rival in town. Um, so I think it probably accelerated the step towards the digital approach, probably by a couple of years for the what I call the old school newspapers.
0: And what's, on a kind of similar similar um, approach, what's the relationship between the people who do the kind of very, the, the match reporters and then the people who do the kind of investigations of football, someone like David Conn or The Guardian or something like that? Are, you, are they sort of different tribes or are there people who are... Kind of crossing those those two lines.
2: David Kahn's a mate, so I think that probably answers your question. Uh no, we have because we we'll all do investigations in different levels. And if David Kahn might do a brilliant investigation, he's written some amazing books. Say take one of his FIFA pieces. Um, whether it's my counterpart at The Guardian, Danny Taylor as was, David Heitner now, they'll be writing columns to go alongside that. So actually we're kind of we all part of the same team. Um, I mean Martin Ziegler, who's a fantastic, you know, one of the, the very best uh, investigative uh, sports news reporters, is at the um, is is at the time, and he's fantastic. And I bounce off some of the things. I would occasionally get calls from people within the game saying, what's so and so writing about me?" And I said, "Well, he's an absolute brilliant journalist. You know,
1: you should <laughs> either don't be naughty or uh, or talk to him." Um, I guess as a sort of final question, um, in terms of the tribal element of football. Has there been scrutiny about which club you support and have fans criticised your coverage of their teams sometimes because they think you're impartial or, I mean, they think you're partial?
2: Uh, do you know what? I've been doing this 35 years and I don't think people really know who I support. I mean, uh, Liverpool fans think I'm a Manchester United fan. Manchester United fans think I'm a Manchester City fan. Manchester City fans probably think I'm a complete idiot. Um, no, not really. I mean, I've been doing it so long. I think if if I ever have a sort of slight heart-over-head moment, it's with England, because I want England to do well. Not because I'm some sort of raging patriot, but I just have so much respect for... You know, I watched England as, as a kid. Um... Yeah, and I, I like the individuals there, and it's an opportunity to uh, swan around the world. So I quite like it when England stay on in tournaments. I mean, look, I always stay on and I'll do the final. It's normally France or Germany or Brazil or whoever in the final. But uh, no, I like seeing England doing well. I also, on a very sort of, well, another level, when England do well, the country buzzes. It's huge. You know, it's worth a me- you know, businesses say it's worth a billion quid. And what I found in the first, in my, my first 35 years, in the 35 years of doing this, when I set out, so many people say, what on earth are you going into that for? There's hooliganism, you know, the England national team aren't doing very well. There's why on earth would you want to do that? No one wanted to go into football journalism in 1985, 86. Very, very few. It was probably, lucky for me, is how I actually got in and scraped a living. Now... Everyone wants to write. You know, I mean, I go and give school, uh, give talks at Eton, at universities, Oxbridge, wherever, and the queue every year to talk about how do I get into journalism, to have a chat at the end, how do I get a break, would you look at my blog, grows by the year. So I think we're very fortunate from a very selfish perspective, the explosion, obviously, of the Premier League, new technology, Wi-Fi and grounds, things like that. Um, I've been very fortunate with the, with, with the timing of my career
0: as a final question with the the European Super League story and the kind of media imbroglio that uh, played out with that how from you know where you were sitting with with all your access and things how as a media sort of media football story did that play out and what role did did the press and, and journalism play in, in the rapid u-turn that happened with that proposal
2: i well i got a complaints from a couple of the owners or people close to the owners about my criticism of them. But you know, I've been criticising the Glazers since 2005. I thought these are venture capitalists. You know, they didn't grow up with pictures of Lou Macari on their wall or George Best on their bedroom wall. You know, they're, they're in it for the money. I was very suspicious for them for the from the word go, ditto, cronky at... Um, at Liverpool. Slightly less so with John W Henry at Liverpool. I think there's a, there's a good man in there. I think he's just been badly advised, certainly, on the, on the Super League. But I think that the reason why the Super League was seen off so quickly, I mean, not even VAR has united everyone in football as much as, as much the Super League. But that was a victory for the fans. That was a victory for the fans who, you know, I went to all the games in that week. I I wasn't at the Chelsea game, but I was at Leeds United where the Liverpool fans were there protesting. Leeds fans were backing them. And there was this collectivity within English football. I I, I talked to a lot of fans organisations and I've always said, you guys have got to be more militant. Like the Germans, you've got to complain more. I've been saying this for them for years. And then... um, they app. They were brilliant. Uh, the protest outside Arsenal before the Everton game was just fantastic. The protest outside Manchester United for you know the first protest, obviously it went too far with the attacks on the police, and I mean that's just crazy because you kind of lose the argument when you do that. And going onto the pitch was clearly wrong as well. And you leave that to the full force of the law to uh, to, to to sort out ultimately. But actually, the depth of the feeling. People are saying, you know, the European Super League was a dark moment in the history of football. Nonsense. It was an absolutely brilliant moment because it flushed out the enemy within. They showed their hand and their hand was all about a fistful of dollars. And the fans rallied, united, manned the barricades and absolutely saw them off. And it was it was a great moment. And the prime minister, who's more whiff-waff, ping-pong rugby man, he realised the importance of it. And that's why he's backing the supporters now.
1: Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Henry, for your time and for humouring me with lots of Manchester United (laughs) anecdotes. I really appreciated it.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you for having me on.
0: That was the Always Take Notes interview with Henry Winter, the Chief Football Writer of the Times. He's on Twitter at Henry Winter and his book, 50 Years of Hurt, is published by Penguin. Hello, it's us again. Rachel, what was your takeaway from the interview with Henry?
1: Well, as a disclaimer beforehand, we should say that we recorded this before the Euros, so obviously we did not take in England's unexpected success there and also the sort of political um, debate that was going on around at the Black Lives Matter protest. But I really enjoyed talking to Henry. I particularly appreciated the fact that he regaled us with Manchester United anecdotes. I had told him beforehand that I was a Manchester United fan. So um, listeners may not <laughs> have enjoyed the uh, the density of anecdotes about my favourite team, but I certainly did. How about you, Simon?
0: The thing that I really enjoyed about it was was a kind of writerly question of, of how you actually produce a match report. We really got into the weeds of that. And I just find this fascinating that you have to produce an account of an event that itself has to be complete by the time the event is complete. And clearly there's tremendous skill and artistry in that. I was also fascinated by Henry's, um, I struggle to recall whether it was it was a visualization technique or a, a, a mini nap technique, but he had some kind of like... I think both. I think, I
1: think it was a, a visualization technique for sleep.
0: Yeah, well, a, a lot of powerful new age stuff anyway that he's, he's using, which um, I'm obviously fascinated by. Uh, but I thought it was great and, you know, we've not had a... Um, uh, football writer on before on the show so a really good addition to our pantheon. Uh, Rachel what have you been up to outside the August?
1: I have been covering for a colleague while he's been on holiday so that's kept me busy and I'm working on a few pieces at the moment which are all due at the same time so it's <laughs> lots of fun before I go away at the end of August. How about you?
0: I've been finalising this book proposal I'm working on, it's not completely finished, but I am uh, approaching the finish line, I think, and then The Guardian did a big piece about the battle to publish my book, which came out a week or so ago, and I've had a lot of uh, very positive feedback from, uh, very touching, and I'm also doing various magazine things, so busy from my end. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Acombe.
1: And me, Rachel Lloyd.
0: Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And our score is by Jess Danheiser.
1: If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always. Our crowdfunding page on Patreon is under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with us via our website or leave a review on iTunes, please do.
0: Many thanks. Goodbye.